Dante Gabriel Rossetti, Jenny. Jenny is a unique poem in many ways. It is in the form of a dramatic monologue, in the manner of Robert Browning, whom Rossetti admired. And it is a poem about a fallen woman, a theme to which the Pre-Raphaelites, and Rossetti in particular, were drawn. Jenny, the prostitute, invites our sympathy, even as her moral degeneration repels us. A word about the practice of prostitution in the Victorian era. Prostitutes roamed the streets of London in large numbers. Although precise statistics are difficult to come by, they range from about 8,000, the police figure, and almost certainly too low, to over 80,000, according to some social reformers, such as the Society for the Suppression of Vice. That would be out of a population of about 2 million for London at mid-century. Prostitution was not actually illegal in England. Most prostitutes were young, single women from the working class, often former maids or other domestic servants. They came from poor families and in many cases were orphans or had lost at least one parent. There was usually a significant age and class difference between the girls and their patrons, who were usually older, often married or engaged, and from the middle or upper classes. Rossetti himself used to be fond of nighttime walks through London and was familiar with the nightlife there. Two former prostitutes served as models for his paintings, and one of them became his housekeeper. Like the Blessed Damozel, Rossetti's Jenny is noteworthy for its painterly detail, as one might expect from a poet who is also a painter. It is also rich with complex, multi-layered imagery that is revealed through close and careful reading. The speaker of the poem is a scholar who, needing a break from his intellectual labors, has gone out dancing and has met the blonde and blue-eyed prostitute Jenny. They return to her room, where she falls asleep on his knee before they can go to bed. Rather than wake her, he reflects upon her life and tries to analyze the social forces that have brought the two of them together. Ever the scholar, he compares her to a book, a text to read. Later, in a striking and complicated metaphor, he imagines her as a flower placed in a book, but not just any book, a vile book, suggesting the book is probably pornographic, and pornography flourished during the Victorian era. He also compares her to his virtuous cousin Nell, reminding us that the two women are two sister vessels made from the same clay. At daybreak, the speaker places gold coins in Jenny's hair and leaves quietly, so it is notable that the poem's subject is never awake. The epigraph to the poem, which reads, Vengeance of Jenny's case, fie on her, never name her child, is taken from Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor, a quotation from the character Mrs. Quickly, who misunderstands a Latin lesson referring to the genitive plural case of the pronoun hic hike hoke, 
the masculine, feminine, and neuter forms of the pronoun that means this or these. Mrs. Quickly hears genitive case and horum harum horum, which is the genitive plural form of the pronoun, and thinks this refers to a person named Jenny who is a whore. This is an interesting play on words because while Rossetti's Jenny is named, we never hear from her directly, and some scholars are critical of the fact that Rossetti does not give the subject of his poem her own voice. The poem begins, Lazy, laughing, languid Jenny, fond of a kiss and fond of a guinea, whose head upon my knee tonight rests for a while as if grown light with all our dances, and the sound to which the wild tunes spun you round. Fair Jenny mine, the thoughtless queen of kisses which the blush between could hardly make much daintier, whose eyes are as blue skies, whose hair is countless gold incomparable, fresh flower, scarce touched with signs that tell of love's exuberant hotbed. Nay, Poor flower, left torn since yesterday, until tomorrow leave you bare. Poor handful of bright spring water, flung in the whirlpool's shrieking face. Poor shameful Jenny, full of grace, thus with your head upon my knee, whose person, or whose purse, may be the lodestar of your reverie. End quote. This establishes the situation of the poem. Jenny is lazy, laughing, and languid, and fond of a kiss, and fond of a guinea. A guinea being a gold coin that was worth one pound one shilling, or twenty-one shillings. He characterizes his blonde, blue-eyed Jenny as a flower, not yet showing the signs of, as he puts it, love's exuberant hotbed. And yet she is a torn flower, deflowered, we might say. The line, poor shameful Jenny, full of grace, seems an ironic version of Hail Mary, full of grace. In the next part of the poem, the speaker reveals himself to be a scholar who contrasts Jenny's room with his own room full of books, which he had to leave as a result of weariness from his studies. This room of yours, my Jenny, looks a change from mine so full of books whose serried ranks hold fast forsooth so many captive hours of youth. The hours they thieve from day and night to make one's cherished work come right and leave it wrong for all their theft, even as tonight my work has left, until I vowed that since my brain and eyes of dancing seemed so fain, my feet should have some dancing too. And thus it was I met with you, well, I suppose t'was hard to part, for here I am, and now, sweetheart, you seem too tired to get to bed. It was a careless life I led, when rooms like this were scarce so strange not long ago. What breeds the change, the many aims, or the few years? Because tonight it all appears something I do not know again. The clouds not danced out of my brain, the cloud that made it turn and swim while hour by hour the books grew dim. Why, Jenny, as I watch you there, for all your wealth of loosened hair, your silk ungirdled and unlaced, and warm sweets open to the waist, all golden in the lamplight's gleam, you know not what a book you seem. 
half read by lightning in a dream. How should you know, my Jenny? Nay, and I should be ashamed to say, poor beauty, so well worth a kiss. But while my thought runs on like this, with wasteful whims more than enough, I wonder what you're thinking of. If of myself you think at all, what is the thought, conjectural, on sorry matters best unsolved? Or inly is each grace revolved to fit me with a lure, or sad to think, perhaps you're merely glad that I'm not drunk or ruffianly and let you rest upon my knee. For sometimes, where the truth confessed, you're thankful for a little rest, glad from the crush to rest within, from the heart sickness and the din, where envy's voice at virtue's pitch mocks you because your gown is rich, and from the pale girl's dumb rebuke, whose ill-clad grace and toil-worn look proclaim the strength that keeps her weak. We'll stop there for a moment. Those lines, you're thankful for a little rest, glad from the crush to rest within, from the heart sickness and the din, where envy's voice at virtue's pitch mocks you because your gown is rich, and from the pale girl's dumb rebuke, whose ill-clad grace and toil-worn look proclaim the strength that keeps her weak. Those lines require some explanation because there is a complicated contrast here. Jenny, who is dressed richly due to the ill-gotten gains of her profession, is mocked by a pale girl who is dressed rather poorly and weary from her toils, but is proclaiming the strength that keeps her weak. In other words, Jenny's critic here is weakened by poverty but the signs of her poverty are a testament to her moral strength, which is greater than Jenny's. Some lines later, the poem's speaker invokes the biblical gospel of Matthew. Behold the lilies of the field, they toil not, neither do they spin. So doth the ancient text begin, not of such rest as one of these can share. Another rest and ease. Along each summer-sated path from its new lord the garden hath, than that whose spring in blessings ran, which praised the bounteous husbandman, ere yet in days of hankering breath the lilies sickened unto death. What, Jenny? Are your lilies dead? Ay, and the snow-white leaves are spread like winter on the garden bed. But you had roses left in May. They were not gone, too. Jenny, nay, but must your roses die, and those their purfled buds that should unclose, even so, the leaves are curled apart, still red as from the broken heart, and here's the naked stem of thorns. The lines from Matthew's Gospel are comparing the beauty of the lilies of the field who quickly fade and are subsequently thrown into the fire with humankind for whom God cares so much more. Again, we see this complicated flower imagery associated with Jenny. Her lilies are dead. The roses that she had in May must die as well, and their buds are doomed never to open and flower. Rossetti uses the archaic word purfled here. A purfle was a decorative border on clothing perhaps suggesting the over-ornamentation of the prostitute. A verse paragraph later, 
he speaks of Jenny's knowledge of the city and the things that are advertised, bought, and sold, but don't appear on the market lists. Jenny, you know the city now. A child can tell the tale there, how some things which are not yet enrolled in market lists are bought and sold, even till the early Sunday light, when Saturday night is market night everywhere, be it dry or wet. And market night in the Haymarket, our learned London children know, poor Jenny, all your pride and woe have seen your lifted silken skirt advertised dainties through the dirt have seen your coach wheels splash rebuke on virtue and have learned your look when wealth and health slipped past you stare along the streets alone and there round the long park across the bridge the cold lamps at the pavement's edge wind on together and apart a fiery serpent for your heart let the thoughts pass an empty cloud suppose i were to think aloud what if to her all this were said why, as a volume seldom read, being opened halfway shuts again, so might the pages of her brain be parted at such words, and thence close back upon the dusty sense, for is there hue or shape defined in Jenny's desecrated mind, where all contagious currents meet, a lethe of the middle street? Nay, it reflects not any face, nor sound is in its sluggish pace, but as they coil those eddies clot, and night and day remembers not. Why, Jenny, you're asleep at last, asleep, poor Jenny, hard and fast, so young and soft and tired, so fair, with chin thus nestled in your hair, mouth quiet, eyelids almost blue, as if some sky of dreams shone through. Quote. And here is where the poem's speaker is going to compare the fallen Jenny to his cousin Nell, who is a virtuous woman. Jenny is sleeping, quote, just as another woman sleeps, enough to throw one's thoughts in heaps of doubt and horror, what to say or think, this awful secret sway, the potter's power over the clay, of the same lump it has been said, for honor and dishonor made, two sister vessels, here is one. And the allusion here is to the fact that God is the potter and we are the clay. As Romans chapter 9 verse 21 says in the King James Version of the Bible that Rossetti would have known, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. This suggests that Jenny, who has been molded into dishonor, is not entirely the mistress of her own fate. Forces larger than she have made her thus. The speaker continues his comparison. My cousin Nell is fond of fun and fond of dress and change and praise, so mere a woman in her ways, and if her sweet eyes rich in youth are like her lips that tell the truth, my cousin Nell is fond of love, and she's the girl I'm proudest of. Who does not prize her, guard her well? The love of change in cousin Nell shall find the best and hold it dear. The unconquered mirth turn quieter, not through her own, through others' woe. The conscious pride of beauty glow beside another's pride in her. One little part of all they share, 
for love himself shall ripen these in a kind of soil to just increase through years of fertilizing peace, of the same lump, as it is said, for honor and dishonor made, two sister vessels, here is one. End quote. The speaker sees the similarity between his cousin Nell and the prostitute Jenny, similarity in that they are both made from the same clay, sister vessels. It makes a goblin of the sun. This is a punning reference to a goblin or fiend, but is also a slang term for a one-pound gold coin. So pure, so fallen, how dare to think of the first common kindred link, Yet, Jenny, till the world shall burn, it seems that all things take their turn. And who shall say but this fair tree may need, in changes that may be, your children's children's charity? Scorned then, no doubt, as you are scorned, shall no man hold his pride forewarned, till in the end, the day of days, at judgment, one of his own race, as frail and lost as you, shall rise, his daughter with his mother's eyes. End quote. A verse paragraph later, the speaker says, Fair shines the gilded aureole in which our highest painters place some living woman's simple face, and the stilled features thus decried, as Jenny's long throat droops aside, the shadows where the cheeks are thin, and pure wide curve from ear to chin, which Raphael's Leonardo's hand to show them to men's souls might stand whole ages long, the whole world through, for preachings of what God can do. What has man done here? How atone, great God, for this which man has done? Then the speaker goes on with his metaphor of the rose shut in a book. Like a rose shut in a book in which pure women may not look, for its base pages claim control to crush the flower within the soul, where through each dead rose leaf that clings, pale as transparent psyche wings to the vile text, are traced such things as might make lady's cheek indeed more than a living rose to read. So not save foolish foulness may watch with hard eyes the sure decay, and so the lifeblood of this rose, puddled with shameful knowledge, flows through leaves no chaste hand may unclose. Yet still it keeps such faded show of when twas gathered long ago, that the crushed petal's lovely grain, the sweetness of the sanguine stain, seen of a woman's eyes, must make her pitiful heart so prone to ache, love roses better for its sake, only that this can never be, even so unto her sex is she. This is an involved and complicated metaphor in which the rose is likened to a woman's cheek. It is crushed within a book that preserves it, but also a book that is a vile text that a pure woman may not look within without blushing like a rose. And although the rose is crushed and faded now, even in its degraded state, it still retains the imagery or memory of what it once was. The speaker continues, Yet, Jenny, looking long at you, the woman almost fades from view, 
a cipher of man's changeless sum of lust, past, present, and to come is left, a riddle that one shrinks to challenge from the scornful sphinx. Still later, the poem is 391 lines in all, there is another descriptive passage that is rich in painterly detail and scriptural allusions. So on the wings of day decamps my last night's frolic. Glooms begin to shiver off as lights creep in past the gauze curtains half drawn to, and the lamp's double shade grows blue. Your lamp, my Jenny, kept alight like a wise virgin's all one night, and in the alcove coolly spread glimmers with dawn your empty bed, and yonder your fair face I see reflected lying on my knee, where teems with first foreshadowings your pier glass scrawled with diamond rings, and on your bosom all night worn yesterday's rose now droops forlorn, but dies not yet this summer morn. And now without, as if some word had called upon them that they heard, the London sparrows far and nigh clamor together suddenly, and Jenny's cage bird grown awake, here in their song this part must take, because here too the day doth break. End quote. Jenny's lamp is likened to the lamps in the parables of the wise and foolish virgins in the Gospel of Matthew an obviously ironic usage of the word virgin. And somehow in myself the dawn among stirred clouds and veils withdrawn strikes grayly on her. Let her sleep. But will it wake her if I heap these cushions thus beneath her head where my knee was? No, there's your bed, my Jenny, while you dream. And there I lay among your golden hair, perhaps the subject of your dreams, these golden coins, for still one deems that Jenny's flattering sleep confers new magic on the magic purse, grim web, how clogged with shriveled flies, between the threads fine fumes arise and shape their pictures in the brain, there roll no streets in glare and rain, nor flagrant man-swine wets his tusk, but delicately sighs in musk the homage of the dim boudoir. Or like a palpitating star, thrilled into song, the opera night breathes faint in the quick pulse of light. Or at the carriage window shine, rich wares for choice, or free to dine, whirls through its hour of health, divine for her, the concourse of the park. And though in the discounted dark, her functions there and here are one, beneath the lamps and in the sun, there reigns at last, the acknowledged bell, appareled beyond parallel. Ah, Jenny, yes, we know your dreams. End quote. In that passage, amid its economic imagery of coins, wares, and a purse, the latter an allusion to a fairy tale magic purse that replenishes itself, as does Jenny's purse, which is a sexual pun. The speaker is imagining what Jenny might be dreaming of. He continues, For even the Paphian Venus seems a goddess o'er the realms of love, when silver shrined in shadowy grove, I or let offerings nicely placed, but hide Priapus to the waste, and whoso looks on him shall see an eligible deity.
lots of explicit sexual imagery here with its allusions to phallic statues and Paphian Venus. Why, Jenny, waking here alone may help you to remember one, though all the memories long outworn of many a double-pillowed morn. I think I see you when you wake and rub your eyes for me and shake my gold in rising from your hair, Adenea, for a moment there. Jenny, my love rang true, for still love at first sight is vague until that tinkling makes him audible. And must I mock you to the last, ashamed of my own shame, aghast because some thoughts not born amiss rose at a poor face like this? Well, of such thoughts so much I know, in my life as in hers they show. By a far gleam which I may near, a dark path I can strive to clear. Only one kiss. Goodbye, my dear. End quote. There are many allusions to money in this final passage. The gold of Jenny's hair is likened to gold coins. The phrase, my love rang true, is referring to the fact that money that rings true when struck is not counterfeit. In yet another of Rossetti's ironic metaphors, he asserts that the tinkling of his money for her is proof that his love for her is true. Yet we are reminded of the nature of the speaker's relationship to Jenny. He has bought her love with these same coins. This is a fascinating poem, quite risque for its time, about a fallen woman containing a great deal of painterly imagery and many complicated metaphors about books, about flowers crushed within them, and perhaps most memorable of all, the contrast between the prostitute Jenny and his virtuous cousin Nell, reminding us that both women are made from the same clay. Here is one, the speaker says, and by implication, there is another. What social forces created Jenny? Might she have turned out like his cousin Nell? And yet, in another layer of irony, we are reminded that the speaker is himself a patron of prostitutes, and therefore a supporter of the institution. Rossetti's poem is a unique and memorable application of the dramatic monologue form to a social issue.